Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome to another edition of the Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me once again and listen to me ramble on about Ukraine, Russia, and any other things that come to my mind. This is going to be part four on Whose War Is It Anyway? And I won't mess around too much with the intro. I just thank you for still sticking with me through this whole thing. We're going to be moving on soon away from this to other things like secret societies and different occult subjects like we normally do. But like I said on the last show, this is such a deep rabbit hole. Anything having to do with geopolitics and war, it usually leads down a very, very long, never-ending search for the truth. And you find looking into these things, that it really strengthens my beliefs and a lot of things I already thought when it comes to these wars and these different type of things. I think we've seen everything come full circle with the Ukraine-Russia thing. We've seen now the left has actually moved towards being pro-war officially, and a lot of things that happened in the past with the parties have kind of reversed in a lot of ways. Really, the parties actually seem more and more alike than ever to me. There's only a handful of differences. And it's funny how they always seem to kind of come together in times of war. And I think that is partly because the people, the, the powers behind policy, they know how to bring people together. And it's war. That's one of their main things is convincing people that we share a common enemy to bring us back around because they kind of keep us on that yo-yo and they keep us divided and fighting one another and distracted 
And when they take us too far, they know they can, through the corporate media, they can kind of bring us back around in some form of control and at least get us to agree on certain things or partially agree. So in times of war, the shenanigans, the propaganda ramps up tenfold, and uh, you just see all these people who instantaneously react to whatever situation uh, social media is a great example of that, where you can see people react solely on how they perceive their political parties would want them to react. And you realize that really nothing really matters. It's all about tribes and kind of sticking with the herd and uh, agreeing with the herd and trying to say or do whatever you think the opposition would disagree with and dislike. And social media is a perfect example of that. There's really no, there's no principles, you know. You kind of see that with so many people. And so, and to me, that reinforces what I already thought. There's not a lot of differences between the parties. And if people can be so easily moved on major issues and, and their minds can be changed so quickly, then are there any real strongly held beliefs left? So... I think that we've gotten into a lot of, you know, psychological warfare and the whole psychology of politics and, and propaganda and stuff like that. But I think that uh, also we see how the NGOs really play such a huge part in foreign policy. You know, we've talked about the CFR on here. We've talked about all the other ones, the Atlantic Council, and we've talked about Bilderberg. We've talked about others. Uh, we really haven't went into detail with Bilderberg, but uh, you know what I'm saying. And and so in a future episode, we're going to be looking directly at the main NGOs that you see during these times of war and these spots where these, these uh, wars happen and these uprisings happen because it's almost always the same ones or connected NGOs. That's the way they do it. You know, these tax-exempt foundations under the guise of philanthropy – and notice that you do not rarely ever hear anyone on the left, the right, or even the libertarians talk about these NGOs. In fact, one of the guys I kind of respect, and he definitely is very knowledgeable about matters of war, that's Scott Horton from the Libertarian Institute and Anti-War Radio and all that. I heard him on another show poking fun at people who think that there is a, a new world order, a, a quest for global governance. He called them conspiracy kooks. And, you know, he's another guy who he might every now and then mention one of these NGOs, these think tanks like the CFR, even calling some of their members these wise, wise old graybeards or something like that. But he really doesn't go into detail about how they are behind every war. Even though this guy talks about war all the time, it's like they're afraid to go after these guys. And one of my things is I believe if they're not on the take in some way, they fear that they will never get another book published if they come out against these global elites and their NGOs. And also, a lot of these guys have their own tax-exempt groups. So they may be afraid to actually tell the whole truth because they don't want their own groups to be scrutinized. 
And I think that may be partly why the libertarians are too chicken shit to go after the Council on Foreign Relations and the Atlantic Council and different ones like that. You know, with the uh, conservatives, you know, they used to talk a lot about Soros. And I never really was into looking into Soros because I felt like it was overplayed. But recently, with this whole Ukraine thing, I've seen how Soros has had a huge role in that. And I've really wanted to look into his organizations and kind of do a deep dive on that. Because I've noticed even when the conservatives went after Soros, it was always they might mention the open society. They might mention color of change. They might mention the Tides Foundation, but that's about it. They might mention BLM, which he did give a ton of money to, but they never go and do the deep dive, and they'll never tell you that Soros's organizations also work, seem to work, hand-in-hand with the National Endowment for Democracy and these other groups like Freedom House who are always around when there's these regime changes. So, it's like these guys, these pundits, whether it be libertarian or conservative, and I don't really listen to the, the left-wing guys anymore, but but they'll just give you a little bit of information. You know, we've talked about they'll maybe take you two layers deep in the onion, but that's about it. And they don't really want to do the full dive for whatever reason. Uh, so maybe it's just that they're scared. Maybe they're scared because they know this global group this network, as Quigley called it, are so powerful that they can just be destroyed. You know, there was only one conservative guy I can remember that really did start to go after Soros, and that was actually Glenn Beck. And he was doing some pretty good work back then on Fox, talking about like Edward Bernays and propaganda and George Soros. And right after the Soros stuff, well, Fox fired his ass because he was getting too deep. And we know that we've seen people mention Soros on Fox since then, and they get shut down immediately. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm no big Glenn Beck fan. I think he's probably one of the best in the conservative pundits, kind of uh, that whole club. I don't think he ever quite fit in. I think he's entertaining to a degree, and he's got a good voice for radio, and he's willing to make fun of himself. And I think that that puts him above some of the others. But, you know, I don't listen to these guys anymore unless I'm just in the car listening for a few minutes. But, yeah, he totally sold out after that, you know, because that, I'm sure, was a big hit to his bottom line when Fox fired him. So, anyway, you're not going to see these guys go after these very important NGOs who work with different entities of our government, very powerful entities of our government like the State Department, like certain intelligence groups and their offshoots. And that's just kind of the way things are. So you have to kind of depend on people like me with a small audience to actually tell people what's really going on. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's others out there doing the same thing that I'm doing and doing a better job. I'm just trying to do it in my own way and do my little part. After saying all that, I kind of feel like with this last episode on Whose War Is It Anyway, that we, as bad as I hate to do it, we should probably go back and kind of revisit Victoria Newland's part in the 2014 uprising overthrow of the Ukrainian government. 
because if you didn't listen to the other shows, you may be a little bit lost. And if you're not familiar with that whole thing, then you definitely will be lost in this. And I think we also need to kind of uh, look at President Joe Biden's remarks. I guess he was vice president then about Ukraine and about the 2014 time frame where he was a big part of that whole regime change. So let's check that out real quick. We'll listen to that one more time so we can get a perspective. And then we're going to take some other deep dives. We've got a lot of information on here, some I'm sure you haven't heard. And so I just look forward to bringing it to you so you can share with others. Thank you guys for listening. And here we go. When you're a high-ranking official talking about diplomatic efforts in Ukraine, the last thing you want to do is drop your guard. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, f*** the EU. But that is exactly what reportedly happened between US Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland and US Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt. The exchange has since surfaced online, including the crude swipe at the European Union. The audio clip of a woman and man said to be Newland and Pyatt hears them discussing strategies to work with the three main opposition figures. I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. In terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Boke and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. There is a suggestion for Newland to contact Klitschko directly to play to his top dog sensibilities. While Newland refers to getting the United Nations involved in a political solution. And that's where the unfortunate comment arises. I'm obviously not going to comment on private diplomatic conversations, uh, other than to say uh, it was pretty impressive tradecraft. The audio was uh, extremely clear. Hello, how are you? Good to see you. We're here from America. Would you like some bread? Please take something. Thank you for coming here. This was Newland and Pyatt visiting Independence Square in Kiev in December, handing out food to protesters and police. This latest episode is embarrassing for the US and allows Russia to argue that the opposition is being manipulated by Washington, something that Barack Obama has always denied. The clip was said to have been posted online by the Russian deputy PM, but that has not yet been confirmed. Well, good afternoon. I want to welcome one and all to today's Council on Foreign Relations meeting which, among other things, is here to launch the January-February issue of Foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, do I think there... I think the Donbass has potential to be able to be solved, but it takes two things. One of those things is missing now, and that is I'm desperately concerned about the backsliding on the part of uh, uh, Kyiv in terms of corruption. They made, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one concrete example. I, I, I was 
not I, I, but it just happened to be that was the assignment I got. I, I, I got all the good ones. Uh, and uh, so I got Ukraine. And uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, right, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev. And, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours." If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Now, I don't usually read from super mainstream books, but I wanted to read from Peter Schweitzer's Secret Empires just a little bit because that came out in 2018, and he covered Ukraine in a section in there, and I thought it was a really good book. I actually listened to it on tape because I think, and the reason I think it's a good book is because he actually implicates both Democrats and Republicans in wrongdoing and shows how our representatives are able to really get by the laws and, and make themselves very wealthy from their connections in government. And it's kind of a bipartisan book in that regard, and he's mostly known for being a conservative in the Clinton cash book. But this, to me, is a really good book, and I'm going to read a little bit about that whole thing in Ukraine. He says, Ukraine is blessed with a treasure house of energy resources, particularly oil and natural gas. These riches are a target for Russian covert operations, corrupt oligarchs, and powerful mafia dons, who all sought to control them. Burisma is a secretive Ukrainian natural gas company with deep political ties in the country and the nation's second largest private natural gas producer. Many of Burisma's assets are heavily concentrated in the contentious eastern reaches of the country. This border area with Russia has been the source of conflict with Moscow for decades. Burisma was created in 2006 with the Cypriot registration by Mykola Zlochevsky, the barrel-chested, bald-headed, and future ecology and natural resources minister under the pro-government of Viktor Yanukovych. How did the government minister end up owning a massive energy company? In a story far too familiar in that part of the world, Zlochevsky gave himself the licenses to develop the abundant gas fields. Of note... He took the license for the country's largest gas field, Sakhalinska, from someone else and gave it to a company connected to Burisma. To complete the portrait, Zlochevsky had a reputation for lavishness while in government service with a taste for Bentleys and the occasional Rolls Royce. His other business ventures also reflect his reputed lifestyle. He owns a super-exclusive fashion boutique in downtown Kiev named Zlochi, with chandeliers, marble top tables, and the recessed interactive panels, Zlochi sells accessories made of alligator, ostrich, eel, and lizard. At Zlochi, 
A set of matching crocodile dress shoes and belt will set you back $2,800. The average Ukrainian would have to spend nearly nine months' wages to pay for it. In 2012, President Yanukovych removed Zlochevsky as Ecology and Natural Resources Minister and appointed him to the National Security and Defense Council. But fortunately, a year earlier, the ownership structure of Burisma had been quietly transferred to a Cyprus-based company called Rosity Investments. The island nation has become a favorite venue for Russian activities where oligarchs, mafia, government officials, and intelligence operatives park their assets because of the very tightly secret laws. Zlochevsky's name was still attached to the company, but Burisma's major subsidiaries now listed the same business address as the natural gas firm controlled by a controversial Ukrainian oligarch named Igor Kolomoski. Now, we talked about this before. We've mentioned Igor several times and his connections to Zelensky and Hunter. The UK's Guardian newspaper in 2015 reported Kolomoski to be perhaps Ukraine's most troubling oligarch of all. For a country rife with corruption, war, self-dealing, and cronyism, that is really saying something. But he would prove to be a worthy business partner for Joe Biden's son and John Kerry's inner circle. Pudgy with a thick crop of silver hair, wireframe glasses, and a tight beard, Kolomoski was born into a family of engineers from the eastern half of Ukraine. His power base since 2016 was in Dnipro, an industrial center in the country that has been a cradle to a succession of powerful Ukrainian figures. Dnipro is known as the stomping ground of ex-presidents Lyanod Kuchma and Oleksandr Turchnyov, as well as oligarchs like Viktor Pinchuk. Now, Pinchuk's foundation is one of the ones that funded and still funds, I believe, Open Ukraine, which is the guy Yatsenuk, who became the prime minister in 2014 working with the State Department. It's his organization. Before the breakup of the Soviet Union, the area was the power base for Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev through his company, the Privat Group. Kolomoski controlled Ukraine's largest financial institution, Privat Bank, through which the Ukrainian military got paid and government pensions were distributed. He also controlled media companies and airlines, sometimes referred to as King Kolomoski. Inside the country, his office features a gigantic shark tank, but he does most of his business from his luxurious home in Switzerland. Kolomoski does not even seem to care much for the rules. He holds Ukrainian, Israeli, and Cypriot passports, which is probably because the Ukrainian constitution forbids dual citizenship. But actually, you know what? Ours doesn't, and I learned that from this book. When asked about the fact, Kolomoski quipped, the Constitution prohibits double citizenship, but triple citizenship is not forbidden. Kolomoski's reportedly violent and brutal business practices stand out even in his rough corner of the globe. A British news agency upbraided the billionaire for taking control of a company in Ukraine at gunpoint. Rival oligarchs have sued him in British courts, alleging that he was involved in murders and beatings in relation to prior business deals. Kolomoski allegedly used quasi-military teams and sent hired rowdies armed with baseball bats, iron bars, gas and rubber bullet pistols, and chainsaws to take over the Kermenchuk steel plant in 2006. He also used a mix of phony court orders, often involving corrupt judges or registrars, 
and strong-arm tactics to purge rival board members. Kolomoski vigorously denies any illegal activities, of course. Now, why young Biden and those close to John Kerry viewed Kolomoski as an appropriate business partner is not known. Repeated calls and emails to both about their work with Burisma went unanswered. Kolomoski built his multi-billion dollar empire by raiding other companies. A violent Ukrainian form of mergers and acquisitions involving guns. Matthew Rojansky, director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, has done an in-depth study of the practice. There are actual firms in Ukraine registered with offices and business cards, firms that specialize in various dimensions of the corporate rating process, which includes armed guys to do stuff, forging documents, bribing notaries, and bribing judges. Although the practice is common, Kolomoski stands out. Rojansky calls him the most famous oligarch raider accused of having conducted a massive raiding campaign over the roughly 10 years up to 2010. Given all this, because of his activities, he was eventually placed on a U.S. government visa ban list, prohibiting him from entering the country legally. As we will see, he would be taken off that list shortly after Hunter Biden and Devin Archer joined the board of his energy company. It is important to understand that events in Ukraine that were unfolding as Biden and Archer, who was on the board of the Heinz family office, joined Burisma. It may also explain why they were invited to join. Teresa Heinz Carey, of course. In February 2014, a series of protests and strikes across western Ukraine culminated in a political revolution. President Yanukovych was chased out of office, implicating in both rampant corruption and shameless brutality. And Schweitzer says he was also very cozy with the Kremlin. He was eventually exiled to Moscow. Now he goes on to talk about how the Russians moved into Crimea. He says the international community rightfully reacted to Putin's move with shock and anger. The response from Washington was almost immediate, and for Biden and Archer, there was again the opportunity to strike deals in the wake of the vice president and secretary of state's official duties. In early March, only days after the Russian move into Crimea, Secretary of State John Kerry visited Kiev, arriving with a pledge of $1 billion in the American loan guarantees and offers of technical assistance. He also announced a clear-cut American political and moral support for Ukraine. As he walked along the Institutska Street in the heart of Kiev, a Ukrainian woman beseeched him, We hope Russian troops will leave Crimea, and we also hope for your assistance. Kerry responded, We are trying very hard. Kerry spoke forcefully about the U.S. commitment to an independent Ukraine, but it was Vice President Biden who would end up being point person in the Obama administration's policy towards Ukraine. No one in the U.S. government has wielded more power over Ukraine than Vice President Joe Biden, noted Foreign Policy magazine. Indeed, his power, as it relates to Ukrainian policy, extended far beyond just Washington. He was considered the voice of the country's Western backers. Biden consulted regularly with the Ukrainian president by telephone and made five trips to Ukraine between 2014 and 2017. He did so at the same time that his son and his son's business partners prepared to strike a profitable deal with the controversial and reportedly violent oligarchs Kolomoski and Zlochevsky, who would benefit from his actions. On April 16, 2014, 
Devin Archer made a private visit to the White House for a meeting with Vice President Biden. We do not know the duration because, according to the White House records, the meeting lasted until 11.59 p.m., the end of the day placeholder when the meeting's end was not recorded. Now, less than a week later, on April 22nd, there was a public announcement that Devin Archer had been asked to join the board of Burisma. Three weeks after that, on May 13th, it was announced that Hunter Biden would join too. Neither Biden nor Archer had any background or experience in the energy sector. As was with the case with their deals in China, the foreign company Burisma here did not hide the fact that the son of the vice president and the financial manager for the family of the American Secretary of State were joining the board. Far from it. They mentioned it in the first paragraph of their press release. Devin Archer is an iconic figure in American politics today, according to U.S. media. He is part of the Family Foundation Directorship Hines Family Office with Christopher Hines, John Kerry's stepson, the current, at the time, U.S. Secretary of State. He has served as a senior advisor to John Kerry, and in 2004, during the presidential campaign, he also was an advisor. Today, he is the co-founder and managing director of Rosemont Seneca Partners, where his partner is Hunter Biden, the son of the current U.S. Vice President Joseph Biden. The timing of the announcement is significant. The day before Archer's appointment on April 21st, Vice President Joe Biden landed in Kiev for a series of high-level meetings with Ukrainian officials. The vice president was bringing with him highly welcome terms of a United States Agency for International Development, You said. You said's always around when there's regime changes, too. It's a program to assist the Ukrainian natural gas industry and promises of more U.S. financial assistance and loans. Soon, the United States and the International Monetary Fund would be pumping more than $1 billion into the Ukrainian company. The younger Biden, for his part, tried to put the best possible face on the deal. He claimed that by joining the board of the scandal-laden natural gas producer, he would contribute to the economy and benefit the people of Ukraine. And that, my friends, is part of what they mean by democracy and democratizing these foreign countries. I know that was long, but I felt like uh, you know he really put all that together in one kind of uh, section there where I would have to pull it out of various articles and it would get all jumbled up. So thanks for actually having the patience with me to stumble through the reading of that. Now, we've briefly mentioned the IMF a couple of times, the International Monetary Fund, and how it basically works as a mechanism to control nations. And when they take these huge loans from the IMF, then they are, in fact, controlled, and they have to agree to all these different monetary laws and dropping certain regulations and and dropping certain programs to be able to get the money. Well, let's listen to this clip from, I think it was 2013, right before the overthrow of the Ukrainian prime minister, where he was replaced with a Western agent, Yatsenuk, by our State Department and others. And this is Victoria Newland speaking at the U.S. Ukraine Foundation, bragging about how much money the U.S. has given Ukraine and also how they need to go along with the 
IMF rules so they can qualify for these loans and be rebuilt in the fashion that the IMF wants and allow all these industries basically inside Ukraine. But I also made clear that the United States believes there is a way out for Ukraine, that it is still possible to save Ukraine's European future, and that that is where we wanted to see the president lead his country. And that was going to require immediate steps to de-escalate the security situation and immediate political steps to end the crisis and get Ukraine back into a conversation with Europe and with the International Monetary Fund. As you all know, and as I'm sure you just heard from Anders and other colleagues, Ukraine's economy is in a dire state, having been in recession for more than a year and with less than three months' worth of foreign currency reserves in place. The reforms that the IMF insists on are necessary for the long-term economic health of the country. A new deal with the IMF would also send a positive signal to private markets and would increase foreign direct investment that is so urgently needed in Ukraine. Signing the association agreement with the EU would also put Ukraine on a path to strengthening the sort of stable and predictable business environment that investors require. There is no other path that would bring Ukraine back to long-term political stability and economic growth. Although that was a missed opportunity, it would be a huge shame to see five years' worth of work and preparation go to waste if the, if the AA is not signed in the near future. So it is time to finish the job. As Vice President Biden said in remarks last night, President Yanukovych has a choice. He can choose the path that leads uh, to division and isolation, or he can take a leap and take immediate, tangible steps to defuse his country's crisis and start a genuine dialogue with the opposition and agree on a path that returns Ukraine to economic and political health. Since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions, as they promote civic participation and good governance, all of which are preconditions for Ukraine to achieve its European aspirations. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. Now that you've heard right from the horse's mouth, I wanted to read from an article a little bit from NakedCapitalism.com about the IMF. I don't agree with everything on here, but I think this is a good article on how the IMF has worked inside Ukraine and other countries. And this is from an article called The IMF Connection with the Ukraine Crisis. The IMF has become an instrument in the hands of international finance capital, enabling its penetration into every corner of the globe. But it is not just an instrument of international finance capital. It also serves as an instrument of Western metropolitan powers that stand behind this capital. While defending the interests of international finance capital, it gets dovetailed into the entire coercive apparatus of Western metropolitan powers. Now, this is from a professor, Prabhat Patanuk. He's a professor at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning in New Delhi. Now, let's look here. It says, Well, there was a time when the Soviet Union existed when there was an ideological confrontation between communism, let us say, and capitalism, in which it was generally believed that the hegemony of international finance capital 
is something which is thwarted by the communist countries because they have countries which were centrally planned, countries in which the state played a very important role in generally directing the way in which the economy was to develop. Therefore, that was a regime in which the Soviet Union was actually opposed to the free operation of the market, the free operation of international finance capital. Now, many people tend to see Putin's actions as, in some sense, a continuation or a legacy of the actions of the CPSU, or the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And that, I believe, would be incorrect. Which is why I believe that this is something which is, of course, much more narrowly focused, as far as Putin is concerned, on the security threat of Russia. But what is more, in this security threat, his opposition to the IMF arises not because the IMF is basically a promoter of international finance capital as such, but because the IMF is promoting U.S. foreign policy and a confrontation with Russia. Putin is concerned with the role of the IMF in facilitating the U.S. hegemony over Ukraine. Whatever you may say about the old Soviet Union, what Putin has presided over is the growth of tremendous inequality. I'm not saying only Putin. It began with the collapse of the Soviet Union. I'm not saying only Putin. Boris Yeltsin was there before him and so on. But what has happened in Russia is the growth of tremendous inequality. And so it is not as if Putin, as I mentioned in the beginning, is really fighting an ideological struggle against the IMF because one of the implications of the IMF's conditionalities is to create these enormous cleavages inside the society through its so-called investor-friendly policies. Like I said, don't get me wrong, I don't agree with all this stuff. I'm quite certain there was a lot of inequality in Russia in the Soviet Union before it fell. But I want you to kind of get an idea of what the IMF is doing, because I think he's right about this part. So the interviewer asks him, So the way you see it, Putin is not really opposed to inequality, and so Putin is not really fighting against the IMF for its role in creating, as you say, enormous cleavages inside society. Focus for a moment on this role of the IMF when it intervenes in an economy. Explain how the IMF conditionalities work and what these investor-friendly policies mean for people, not only in this case the Russian and Ukrainian people, but for working people in general. Professor, it typically means, firstly, that the government's role in the economy is on behalf of the people, and that means that the government's role in providing subsidies, and essential goods whose prices remain low. The government's role in providing education, in providing health care, in providing employment, all this must actually be wound up. That does not mean that the government's role in the economy is something which is rolled back. No, the government is supposed to act in the interests of big capital, big finance, which is aligned to the international finance capital. The government completely changes the role that it was playing earlier, and the government uses its new role of being a promoter of the interests of big capital to attack the living standards of the people. So you act against the working class. You reduce the bargaining strength of the working class, and that's called introducing labor market flexibility, which means the trade unions have to be weakened or smashed so that it becomes investor-friendly. You reduce the social wage which the government was providing through its health care and other expenses. You wind up the public sector, and that public sector is wound up for the song. I don't know what he means by that. 
public sector units are sold for a song to the various big capital, domestic as well as foreign. So altogether, it amounts to an attack on the working people to make the economy investor friendly. Now, this is where the professor kind of suggests or actually says that the IMF was created as a good reason. And I kind of feel like that is false. I almost feel like it was all a plan to eventually allow, as he calls it, finance capital, international finance capital. Uh, We would call them globalists to take over the world slowly but surely. But he says, you see, when the IMF was started... It was started as an aid to, let's say, a development strategy in which the state played a major role. The government played a major role in providing relief to the people and generating directly through its expenditures larger amounts of employment in the economy. So the IMF was an aid to that. In fact, the IMF was started, as you know, at Bretton Woods Twin Institutions, the IMF and the World Bank. The Bretton Woods Agreement... The proposal that was agreed upon was basically pioneered by John Maynard Keynes, Fabian Socialist, on the one hand, and Harry Dexter White of the United States on the other. And I'm pretty sure Harry Dexter White was a stalwart in the CFR at the time. Harry Dexter White was associated with the Roosevelt administration, was associated with the New Deal, while Keynes had been reading about the need for what he called socialization of investment, that the state must always ensure that the economy is close to full employment. The international regime in which they would operate allowed trade controls, tariffs, quantitative restrictions on imports and on exports. It allowed capital controls, and at the same time it actually said, okay, you have a balance of payment problems. A country can get into a balance of payment problems, and some of these problems may not be easily solved. In such a case... You would have to borrow from an organization, and the IMF was meant to be such an organization. We, the West, have rebelized your country through a war that we pushed, and now you must rebuild by taking out this huge loan, which you will not be able to repay back, and so the globalists will own your country. Uh, Did I sum it up? Now, the IMF then would also impose certain targets in terms of how government expenditure has to be cut and so on. That itself is something which many progressive economists had opposed at the time because it actually generated unemployment within the deficit country as a means of overcoming deficits. But those targets were within the regime, within the same economic regime, The government, if it's spending, let's say, $100, should actually cut back its expenditure by 20 so that the demand goes down, import demand goes down, and therefore the deficit goes down, like a government's going to stop their spending. Surplus countries were under no compulsion to make any adjustment. Under the IMF arrangement, it is only deficit countries who were coerced into making adjustments in order to overcome the crisis, to overcome their balance of payment problems. Imagine, suppose the surplus countries had been forced to make adjustments by increasing expenditures. See, ultimately, all countries' deficits and surpluses balance out to zero. But that was not agreed because of which, basically, even under the old IMF, Many of us were critical of the role that the IMF was playing, but all that was still within the regime. Stick with me here. 
Then the IMF changed, and then it became not only an entity for giving loans to meet deficits, but an entity that started suggesting that, no, this regime is not good. You have a neoliberal regime. So that entity then started saying that the public sector should be privatized, that there should be no health care, that where the government cuts expenditures is not left up to the government. It is now the IMF that decides on it, and so on. That the role of the government should be changed. That it should not either directly bring larger employment to the people or increase the real wages of the people through larger social wage, but it should actually make the country investor-friendly, which basically means attack the working class. So it actually started suggesting an alternative economic regime quite different from the economic regime that either Keynes or Harry Dexter White would have approved of. That's how the IMF has changed. It actually became, if you like, an entity looking after, globally, the interests of international finance capital. But even that, as I tried to suggest in my article, is of course a general role that the IMF plays all over the world now. But in addition... It has a particular closeness to the foreign policy of the U.S., to the administration of the U.S., because of which it actually penalizes countries that defy it. And what is more, defying it then becomes an occasion for the U.S. to intervene in the politics of the country to change the government. So this is really very different from the role that was originally envisaged for it under the Bretton Woods Agreement. So the interviewer says... This changed IMF that you are describing then is the IMF that in the 1990s, Heiner Flassbeck and his colleagues found advising governments everywhere in the former Soviet republics, even Russia. And it is this economic policy of the West that Flassbeck calls out for having brought massive damage to the countries and proved fatal for their development chances. And the professor says yes. After the collapse of the Soviet Union and Eastern European socialist countries, there was a huge drop in their GDP, a huge drop in their gross domestic product and in their national income, and you had a massive increase in unemployment. You had really an economic distress which was unparalleled in peace times. And as far as Russia is concerned, it was for a very long time during the Yeltsin period virtually run by a group of persons from the United States. In fact, they surrounded Yeltsin, and they were the main economic architects of that kind of collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia. And that is something where, again, you have the emergence of these oligarchs who simply appropriated state property as their own. Now, to some extent, in Russia itself, there was some check on it that was introduced after Boris Yeltsin left the scene. But in the rest of the Eastern European countries, you actually have now a situation where they have lost their productive systems. The productive apparatus which had been built up is now not in place. Instead, people are simply migrating as cheap labor to Western Europe and to Britain and so on. Now, hopefully, regardless if you approved of those countries being socialist or whatever, they were sovereign countries and these American globalists and UK globalists and the different ones that are connected to all these different globalist groups have no business controlling these countries and controlling the people and controlling their financial systems. But that's what they do. It's what they've done. And that is really what the New World Order is all about, is these entities taking over the entire planet. 
under the World Economic Forum or all these other groups. Now we're going to get specifically into the IMF in Ukraine. Now the professor, he says, Ukraine has been having a relationship with the IMF for quite some time from the late 90s. This connection is not a temporary one. In other words, it is not as if you have a balance of payments problem and you go to the IMF for a temporary loan and then you put your economy in order and you pay back the loan. It was not that kind of arrangement. The loan that Ukraine and many other Eastern European countries took from the IMF was really quite unpayable. And even now, the debt that they have to the IMF and to others together is something which is quite unpayable. They cannot really pay back that kind of debt, particularly when their productive apparatus is not really generating much. So that was going on. So the IMF, at one point, therefore insisted that in order to continue with the debt, Ukraine had to meet certain conditionalities. In these conditionalities, it wanted a reduction in the real wage. It wanted curtailment in the government's welfare expenditures, particularly on education and health care. And it also wanted a cutback in subsidies. You see, in Ukraine, the government had been providing substantial subsidies on gas, which is made available to all domestic consumers. In the absence of the government's subsidies, there would be very high gas prices that people would really suffer a great deal from. And that is when Yanukovych, who was president of Ukraine at the time, said, no, this is something which is not possible. So at that point, therefore, IMF ended up deciding that if the conditions are not met in that case, it's not going to provide any more loans to Ukraine. That's when Yanukovych started negotiating with Russia. Then Freeze asks, how do the Madan Square demonstrations fit into all this? And she's talking about in 2014 and the uprising. Professor says, the moment it became clear that Yanukovych was not going to be accepting the loan from the IMF, the demonstrations began. This loan was also linked to trade negotiations with the European Union. So when the IMF loan fell through, trade negotiations with the European Union also fell through. And that is when demonstrations started occurring in the Madan Square against Yanukovych. So then after the Yanukovych government was toppled and the government changed hands in 2014 and Yatsenyuk took over, and then the professor says, I am thinking here of the unwillingness to accept loan conditionalities that you mentioned earlier. Prominently, the unwillingness of Yanukovych to cut government subsidies on Ukrainian gas provided to domestic consumers. So in other words, cut public spending that served a broad public interest by keeping the cost of living down. So comment on what the new government did when it came in. Professor, firstly, it slashed the gas subsidy by half. Therefore, gas prices went up for the consumers. Secondly, you know there was a ban on the sale of land area in Ukraine to big capital, to foreigners, and so on under Yanukovych. And that had been one of the things demanded by the IMF that the ban should go. And immediately, when the government came in, that ban went. So you had the opening up of Ukraine, not just Ukrainian resources, but even land area to the penetration of foreign capital, foreign big capital. Now, this happens all the time when our country goes into these wars or does these regime changes. The people in charge at the top get to go in 
with all their cronies and buy up the land and buy up the properties and buy up the businesses at pennies on the dollar. So in the 90s under Bill Clinton, after the war in Kosovo, what happened? Well, Madeleine Albright and Wesley Clark, General Wesley Clark, leader of NATO, went in and did their best to try to privatize Kosovo and buy up properties like mineral mines and different things like that. And you have to look at how they did that. There's Albright Capital Management, and she had several other ones. And Wesley Clark to this day works for one of those capital management firms, I believe. But that's what they do. They go in and, and make a fortune. Of course, it's not just them. It's their friends and their cronies and whatnot. But that's one of the things that happens that barely gets any attention in the mainstream. Actually, and the interviewer here actually says, we're, we're going to finish up here, but Freeze, she says, according to the IMF Fast Facts, as of March 2021, Ukraine is one of IMF's four largest borrowers. Fast forward to today, March 2022, and as we all know, Ukraine went back to the IMF for a further loan. Before that loan had been approved, you wrote, the precise amount of support and purpose for which it is being asked are still not clear. But one thing remains certain. After the current crisis comes to an end in that region, no matter what form that resolution takes, Ukraine will become a second Greece in Europe. And then she says, please explain. Professor, yes, I mean in the following sense that the size of the loans are so large that I do not believe that Ukraine is going to come out of this state of indebtedness in any way through its own actions. This globalization that we are talking about, for which the IMF has prepared the ground all over the world, has taken two quite distinct forms. There are places like in Asia, let's say China, Vietnam, to some extent India, and so on, where globalization takes the form of the location of manufacturing or service sector activities. In other words, these are the countries to which a lot of the activities are shifting from the metropolis. So their productive system survives and is promoted by globalization, but not in the interests of the people. I mean, obviously, the people don't benefit from it because agriculture gets destroyed and so on. I'm not going to get into that, but there are other places where globalization takes the form not of supporting the sustaining and promoting of the productive apparatus, but rather the productive apparatus gets completely destroyed, and of course people then start migrating. Now, Eastern Europe is part of the latter, and that is why the idea of Eastern European countries generating enough production in their own country that through exports getting enough foreign exchange to pay back this loan does not arise. And of course, borrowing from international finance capital to pay the IMF is something which may happen, but that's not something which constitutes a solution to the problem of indebtedness. So I think that these countries are going to remain highly indebted, and in that sense, they would be like Greece. And forever, there would be these measures of austerity, which will be imposed on the people. That means they will be excluded from the benefits of these loans or whatever. And finishing up, he says this about Ukraine. There's a general objective that all countries should be opened up to the free movement of capital, finance, and even of commodities. In fact, that is the essence of neoliberal economic policy, that fundamentally economies should be opened up. 
And when they are opened up, it's not just for capital to come in and set up industries or capital to come in and buy up industries, but capital must come in and also take control of the sources of raw materials. And in the case of Ukraine, also take control over the land area. Capital would like to own the entire land of the planet. So the point is, that is our general objective, which is promoted by the IMF on behalf of the international finance capital all over the world. That is what the IMF these days does everywhere. But in the case of the confrontation between Russia and Ukraine, the argument which I have been putting forward, it is something much more specific. And that specific feature lies in the fact that it actually is promoting American foreign policy interests. There's a close intermingling of U.S. foreign policy interests with the IMF. And so, it is not just the general role of the IMF, but the role of the IMF that is very specific in this particular instance, which is superimposed, if you like the general role, and that it consists in keeping Ukraine under the thumb of the IMF so that it actually follows U.S. foreign policy interests. And I am finished. I hope this helped you to understand how important the IMF is in Ukraine, but also in many, many of these countries where the IMF is working. It's basically just another apparatus, a very important apparatus, to help the global banking and industry elites take control of these countries. And even if people don't understand that when they talk about New World Order or the Great Reset or you know the uh, New Normal, that's what we're talking about. That is, the Build Back Better people are, you know, they are a part of the IMF and the CFR and the World Economic Forum and the Atlantic Council and NATO and all these different things. And that doesn't mean that Russia's this great country. It doesn't mean that their government are these great people that are trustworthy and really, really want freedom. It, to me, means that the global elite wanted Russia to be a part of the New World Order, the Great Reset, but didn't want them to have a pivotal role. And Putin and the Russian government weren't down for that. They've been one of the most powerful countries in the world and a proud country, and he wanted to have a bigger role in it. And, of course, we know that Ukraine is really important as far as for Russia uh, getting uh, their gas pipelines through there. They're uh, also, I believe, in the Donbass region. It's very coal-rich there. The Black Sea ports in Crimea, and, of course, the airstrip in Crimea that Russia uses all year long or was using. But it's just a very important place for Russia. And like Brzezinski said, if Russia doesn't have Ukraine, Russia... They do not have an empire. And so that's what this is all about. It's all about money when it comes down to it, I believe. And people can take this information and do with it what they will. Make up your own mind about all these things. I'm just trying to bring this information to you to help you to understand the big picture. All right, that wraps up part four in Whose War Is It Anyway? I keep saying it's going to be the last one, but... It just isn't happening that way. There's way too much information. And if I just ignore it, I will have wasted my time. And there's still 
stuff that you guys need to know. So look for part five coming soon. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your interest in the show. Please feel free to share the show. Leave me a good rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Check out alternatecurrentradio.com to find the show and many other great shows like The Boiler Room there. They've got lots of talk shows and music shows, and we could all use some music to kind of get away from the seriousness of everything. So thank you to Alternate Current Radio for their continued support. Thank you to John Brisson for posting my shows on his We've Read the Documents YouTube page. Thank you to Fringe Radio Network for posting the show. They also have many good shows on there as well. And I want to thank my wonderful patrons. Thank you to Abdullah, James, Bill, Peterson, Kevin, Chris, Rooster, Flat Dark and Earthy, John William Brisson, Greg, Kilowatt, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Aaron, David, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, and James. Thank you guys for your support. If you want to support the show, it is patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I thank you for your time. Look forward to bringing you more shows very soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. The deal, as far as I know, is that the IMF agreed to provide Ukraine with $17 billion uh, in aid in two tranches over two years, with uh, them, I think, getting $3 billion immediately. Um, well, that strikes me uh, as being about half as much as they need. Um, to pay so, Russia. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> this is... Um, well, explain, explain that part, to pay Russia. Ukraine owes Russia a lot of back payments for gas that it's uh, bought and didn't pay for. Uh, then Ukraine tried to replace uh, Russian coal with uh, South African coal, and it didn't pay for that either. So nobody will sell to Ukraine because it's the most corrupt country in Europe. Uh, and R Russia made a loan to Ukraine from the Russian sovereign fund. And there was a statement in this loan that if Ukraine's debt rises above, I think, something like 80% of its uh, GDP, the entire $5 billion loan falls lo uh, due immediately. So so Ukraine may suddenly have to give its entire gold stock to Russia if, if the IMF doesn't give it enough. So the IMF did not give Ukraine enough to pay the debts that it owes Russia, and it's keeping it on a very short leash so that it could control it. Now, what kind of democracy can you have if your government is always in debt, always obliged to let your economic policy being dictated by the IMF and the World Bank, which means by the U.S. Treasury, which means basically by NATO, by the American State Department politically. Uh, if you're kept on a short debt leash, democracy becomes meaningless. But this is only until the debts are paid off. Then once the debts are paid off... <laughs> but they can never... They, uh, they, they owe so much money, they can never pay why, it off why? because they can't export... You, the way you pay off a foreign debt is to earn foreign currency. Either they export, and uh, Ukraine says, we're not going to export to Russia anymore. We're not going to export our resources to Russia so that it can invade us. We're not going to help its military industry. Uh, and nobody else wants their exports. So there's only one thing Ukraine has to export, half of its population. If, if you're between the ages of 20 or 30, you're going to be exported. Dream with me of a shining gleam of daylight, of a darkened lamp 
of midnight of a chance to survive. Scream with me when the reaper comes a calling, when the cold rain is falling, when a you dance past us by. Cause our hearts not to beat But on going 